Before we get to today's show, I'd like to hear from you. This show is nothing without our listeners, and we want to make sure we provide you with what you're looking for. Our mailbox is open to all suggestions. So if you have a topic you want to learn about, or a guest you want to hear from, let us know by sending us an email to jagahealthandwellness at gmail.com. That's C-H-A-G-A-H-E-A-L-T-H-N-W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S at gmail.com. Now, enjoy the episode. How did a small-town sheet metal mechanic come to build one of Canada's most iconic fishing lodges? I'm your host, Steve Nidzwicki, and you'll find out about that and a whole lot more on the Outdoor Journal Radio Network's newest podcast, Diaries of a Lodge Owner. But this podcast will be more than that. Every week on Diaries of a Lodge Owner, I'm going to introduce you to a ton of great people, share their stories of our trials, tribulations, and inspirations. Learn and have plenty of laughs along the way. Meanwhile, we're sitting there bobbing along, trying to figure out how to catch a bass. And we both decided one day we were going to be on television doing a fishing show. My hands get sore a little bit when I'm reeling in all those bass in the summertime, but that's might be for more fishing than it was punching. You so confidently you said, hey, Pat, have you ever eaten a drum? Find Diaries of a Lodge Owner now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. As the world gets louder and louder, the lessons of our natural world become harder and harder to hear, but they are still available to those who know where to listen. I'm Jerry Olette and I was honored to serve as Ontario's Minister of Natural Resources. However, my journey into the woods didn't come from politics. Rather, it came from my time in the bush and a mushroom. In 2015, I was introduced to the birch-hungry fungus known as chaga, a tree conch with centuries of medicinal applications used by indigenous peoples all over the globe. After nearly a decade of harvest, use, testimonials and research, my skepticism has faded to obsession, and I now spend my life dedicated to improving the lives of others through natural means. But that's not what the show is about. My pursuit of this strange mushroom and my passion for the outdoors has brought me to the places and around the people that are shaped by our natural world. On Outdoor Journal Radio's Under the Canopy podcast, I'm going to take you along with me to see the places, meet the people, that will help you find your outdoor passion and help you live a life close to nature and under the canopy. Today, that person is Bruce Ranta, retired from the Ontario Ministry of Natural Resources. On this week's show, we're going to learn all about planning for high water, what has changed in Ontario's approach to wildlife management, and a few misconceptions about caribou. So join me today for another great episode and hopefully we can inspire a few more people to live their lives under the canopy. Well, good morning, Bruce, and how are you up there? And is it raining up there? Uh, it's sort of raining. It's been raining, and it's uh, it's sort of drizzly and kind of cool and windy. 
Cool. What uh, what kind of temperatures? Now, Bruce, let everybody know on the podcast exactly where about you are we talking to you from, roughly. <laughs> well, I live uh, within the city limits of uh, Kenora, but uh, I live in the woods uh, north of the built-up area. I'm just on the edge of uh, the city, and it's pretty rural where I am. I've got 232 uh, acres here. Oh, yeah, what's that? Is that up near, uh, what is it, uh, Jack Rabbit Lake Road? No, I'm north of uh, the Rabbit Lake Road. I'm uh, north of the bypass uh uh, which runs north of the city, yep. uh, the bypass being Highway 17 or the Trans-Canada Highway. I'm about uh, 10 kilometers as the crow flies uh, north of uh, the uh, Trans-Canada Highway there. Very nice, very nice. And uh, now we've got a time change, so it's a bit different there, which is nice. And you're getting some cool weather, but down here we are still got the hot stuff. I mean, yesterday it was like 30 here yesterday, Celsius that is, for our... Uh, listeners abroad who still deal with Fahrenheit. And how about you, Bruce? What uh, What's the temperatures like been up there? Um, it's been, uh, the last week was pretty warm. It, uh, we were in the 20s, uh, high 20s. But this morning it's, uh, it's 10 degrees. So it's cool this morning. We have had cooler weather earlier. We had at our place here, uh, we've had frost twice. Already? Yeah, yeah. I was I was doing with some um, some uh, events in the Peterborough Lindsay area down Marway, just outside the GTA Greater Toronto area, and they had had frost in a number of the places, and it had killed off. You now, what we were talking about that time was stinging nettle. And oh yeah, because they wanted to get a bunch of stinging nettle from them, but they said no, it's all gone because the frost killed it all, which was kind of surprising already, considering where I am. But then again, last Saturday it was ten degrees difference from where. We are here in Oshawa compared to driving an hour north of here. So, yeah, that happens this time of the year, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. So, and about this time, uh, shortly, you got to go out and do somebody's run, do you? Your well, dog. Uh, my, uh, my hunting dog uh, needs its uh, daily uh, uh, walk <laughs> in the morning and in the evening. So, yep. I usually take uh this time of year of course i if the weather is uh, cooperative i take my shotgun and we see if we can roust up a grouse or a woodcock so oh. yeah are there any, have you seen any flights go through yet woodcock flights i the wife sits on the deck and she says she can hear them uh she's heard them a couple of evenings twittering uh, uh away but uh, her hearing is a lot better than mine so <laughs> I, I i don't hear them at all um we don't have a lot of woodcock here but on our property we cut about 80 acres mm-hmm. of poplar of eight or nine years ago right and uh it's it, so it's pretty thick right now uh and it's I've tried to keep the balsam regrowth out of there. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty uh, solid poplar with some spruce in there. Right. And there are some woodcock. Uh, on a good day, I might see, I've seen three. Oh, yeah. Um, but they're hard to hit. And it's, it's, the poplar is so thick that I'm, I have about two seconds to uh, get on them or they're <laughs> just in, in, they've disappeared. Yep. So, Bruce, maybe you can just let our our listening audience know, what was your position? Because, Bruce, you were with the Ministry of Natural Resources when I was there and for quite a period of time, weren't you? 
I was there for 30 years. 30 years. And, and what did you do with the ministry? Well, I started off and ended off as a district uh, biologist. But in the interim, I also uh, were, was for many years a regional uh, biologist. And uh, then I was uh, for seven years uh, a senior biologist in forestry branch. Oh, yeah. In policy section and forest management planning. Okay. So I did a quite a number of different uh, things, mostly with wildlife, but I also did work with uh, uh, fish and other uh, things. Yep. Yeah. No. No. I mentioned, and and a lot of people wouldn't understand this, but Northern Ontarians would understand when when because. Dad was from the Sioux, Sioux St. Marie, and I knew I was a junior minister of the PA for Northern Development and Mines, also the Minister of Natural Resources. And in Northern Ontario, it doesn't matter if you're standing in a school or if you're in a hospital or where you are, and anybody says, where do you work? You say you work for the ministry. What ministry are you working for there, Bruce? <laughs> <laughs> well, that used to be the case. I don't think that, I think that has changed in the last few years. The Ministry of Natural Resources has uh and forestry has really declined in stature in the last uh, eight or ten or twelve years. So it's not not like it used to be. But for a long, long time, that's exactly uh, true. What you're saying that if you said you worked for the ministry, everybody knew that you were working for a natural resource. Yeah. So, what kind of files did you work on with the, the ministry, Bruce? Well, uh, I did a lot of work with. Uh, uh, Moose management, uh, deer management. I did some work with caribou management. I uh, did uh, work with uh, uh, a lot of habitat work on uh, fisheries. I uh, did uh, these large, uh, what used to be called CFIP projects, community fisheries involvement projects, where we were uh, building and enhancing spawning grounds, mostly for walleye, but also for uh, lake trout. Uh, I did uh, work with uh, uh, researchers from mostly, well, uh, one fellow from the U.S., uh, Dr. Greer, helped him a lot with uh, bald eagle research and uh, writing. And all of these uh, various wildlife files, usually what I my role was uh, uh, dealing with habitat mostly, but uh, also populations. But I did a lot of um, writing of guidelines oh, yeah. in terms of uh, when forest management companies would, would have to submit a plan uh, to cut a piece of forest, then they'd have to adhere to wildlife guidelines to ensure that uh, specific values like eagle nest or moose aquatic feeding areas were respected and that we left uh, cut the forest in such a pattern that it enhanced uh the habitat for moose or deer or or caribou, as mm-hmm. the case may be. Yeah, I was. Um, you mentioned about the guidelines, and, and I know I was. Uh, the family and I were last summer, um, twenty twenty two. We were up on Ivanhoe Lake, and there's a provincial park there. And there was this these eagles, uh, these bald eagles, and they were just screaming like crazy, and I couldn't figure out what was going on. And it was in the park, and so we started to took our boat because we were on the lake fishing, and we took our boat in closer to sea, and it looked like wow, that's a that's a boy, that's a pretty big young bald eagle. Because as you know, they don't have their head 
plumage, that that white that the mature ones would have. Anyways, that it was huge, and then all of a sudden it takes off, and I realized what was happening was there were golden eagles, two golden eagles there, and the bald eagles were doing what you see crows do to owls. These bald eagles were doing to these golden eagles, and I guess the the nesting habitat in that area would have been ideal for the golden eagles because it appeared every day we were there. It looked like they were on a nest on Ivanhoe Lake uh, Provincial Park. Well, I'm not familiar with uh, that park at all. So yeah, it was. Uh, but uh, habitat is a, plays a big role in a lot of it, as you said. And I, obviously, habitat is one of the key things and to to bringing in. So, and you mentioned about the the guidelines that you established. Now, the guidelines would be for your district or for the province when you're talking about forestry management guidelines. Uh, these were uh, provincial guidelines that I was working on. Specifically, I worked for several years. Uh, what they call the stand and site guide, which is uh, the guide that uh, all the forest management plans on crown land in all of Ontario have to follow. Okay. Yeah, I had uh, Ian Dunn. I don't know if you know Ian now. Ian probably came on after you retired. He is now the the president CEO of the Ontario Forest Industries Association. And one of the discussions we had was the, the industry or the forest industry was concerned that the guidelines were interpreted differently for forest harvesting in each of the different districts, which made it very complex for a lot of their forest harvesters to comply with the guidelines if they move into a new area and used to the ones they had. But but what you're telling me is that the guidelines should be consistent throughout the province. Well, it is the same guidelines, but uh, we recognize or are certainly uh, the office, the policy section I was working in, uh, recognized that there's a lot of uh, different interpretation as to how people actually apply them, and uh, it's a, it's an individual. It uh, gets down to both the uh, the individual that's making the decisions, whether it's that's the biologist or a planner mm-hmm. of some sort, or uh, it's uh, sometimes there's differences in approach by uh, the districts and the regions. So we. Uh, there was an attempt to try and do training to get people to be more or less consistent, but uh, people uh, are want to do things as they see themselves in the situations that they're in. And, of course, conditions do vary across the province, so mm-hmm. there is a, there is probably a need for some flexibility, but sometimes it does get, in my opinion, a little out of hand. Yeah, and, well, it's nice to to hear you mention that because uh, certainly the forest industry, and all the forest players that I want, they want to comply with the rules, but it's difficult for them to understand them sometimes when they change without really being notified or understanding how it's being interpreted differently. But it's like you said, I know that... um, one of the things in development areas is they always talk about the high watermark for land development. And a lot of the conservation authorities here are the ones that that determine what areas is allowed to be developed based on high watermark. But the problem is, is that in the, unless it's changed, and I tried to get it changed a number of times because, but the, the previous governments in the province had uh, the high watermark listed, but it could be an annual high watermark a 10-year high water mark or a 100-year high water mark. Where, so what that means is that the, 
the banks of a for just for the listeners because obviously you would know Bruce, but the the banks of a stream, uh, there's an annual high water mark for those streams, and then there's a ten year one where every ten years it'll reach this high, and then there's one called the hundred year high water mark. So it was very difficult for a lot of developers down in in urban areas to try and determine what the local conservation authority wants as their high water mark, and it was very arbitrary for those individuals to determine, okay, this is allowed, this is not allowed. And I, I guess it's the same with, with the forest industry where it could be interpreted differently if it's listed as things like just the high water mark. Yeah, it's, uh, there's, a lot of, <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of gray area always out there. I mean, even when, if you're talking about uh, uh, 10-year floods and 100-year floods and whatnot, that's, like when the forest industry is building roads and putting in culverts across streams, mm-hmm. if it's uh, just a little turkey trail that's going to be temporarily uh, in place, they put a culvert in that supposedly was built to withstand the 10-year flood. But, of course, within that 10 years, you could have a 100-year uh, flood, yep. and then, then it just gets going to get washed out. On the more permanent roads, they build culverts based on what the engineers believe is a hundred year flood, mm-hmm. but you could have a 200 year uh, flood <laughs> or there, uh, or because the climate is always changing for whatever reason, yep. uh, what they thought was a hundred year flood, maybe actually be a 50 years because often they don't have hundred years of data to know exactly what's going on. So that there's all kinds of problems and all that, but you have to come up with some sort of a, a rationale to, uh, behind what you're doing so that people can at least understand. But you can't assume that that's, it's, it's going to always work and if things are going to mm. be tick-tick-boo all the time. Like there's, there's lots of errors out there. Yeah, and just so people listening and understanding are not used to dealing with this. So what that means is that once every hundred years, there is a flood that comes through that has a, an extremely high water mark, or as you mentioned, the 50 or the 200 year high water mark. So once every 50 years and once every 200 years. But like you mentioned, it's difficult with the data that's available to try and determine exactly what those are. And that's where things like down here, the conservation authorities come in to make those decisions. Yeah. So Bruce, you mentioned some of the things like moose management you worked on. Now, maybe you can just kind of give us a rundown of when you implement guidelines for moose management, how does that play out? Like what is that? Is that for that's just basically for the forest industry? Yes, no. Well, uh, I mean, there's all, the first program is based uh, on there's population component where you look at what you're going to harvest. There's a, you have a target of uh, that's based on the carrying capacity, the estimated carrying capacity of the landscape, and uh, then you you try to. Uh, make sure that you at least achieve the carrying capacity or perhaps enhance it through uh, manipulation of habitat through forest management planning, or you recognize what's going on naturally in terms of uh, forest fire uh, blowdowns or uh, insect infestations. There's all these things that are taking place that you have to uh, juggle when you're, do- you're into the moose management program. Mm. No, no. Okay, so. it's, it's fairly complex. And you have to recognize that, like, there's in Ontario, they have what they call a uh, the, something along the lines of the uh, the survey program. So the pr- uh, province has divided up the province as to what survey is uh, uh, to 
be featured on land, the landscape and where the management efforts apply. So about half the province is to be managed primarily for uh, caribou. Uh, then there's a big swath in the middle of the province that is managed primarily for moose. Mm-hmm. Then there's uh, around the edges, there's a, a big, uh, another fairly big chunk where it's moose, deer, and elk are all uh, sort of mixed in together. And then in the southern part of the province, it's uh, deer is the focus. Okay. So when you talk moose management and forest planning, what kind of cuts would be initiated to, to support moose, moose uh, growth and development population-wise? Well, what you try to achieve uh, when you're managing habitat for moose is a, a, a mix, a, a mosaic uh, that has a mix of older forest and younger forest, uh, with uh, interspersed with lots of uh, residual patches. Okay. So it's it's sort of, it's meant it, it, when you cut a. a the forest following the moose guidelines, what you're trying to do is create a forest that would look what it would look like in the aftermath of a moderate uh, intensity forest fire. Mm-hmm. So that means there'd be patches of forest that uh, aren't cut because there'd be patches that wouldn't be burnt uh, and there'd be uh, uh, ribbons along uh, the streams and four uh, lake edges that uh, vary in width from virtually nothing but could be a couple hundred meters. Right. So, and then you have larger pat, intact patches that aren't burnt uh, between, uh, or aren't cut between the, the next area that's harvested. So that's what you're trying to, trying to do. And it's, you're looking at that sort of a mix uh, on a basically a township size uh, chunk of land. Okay. So when just so people trying to grasp what we're visualize what we're talking about, it's kind of like a oh I don't know what a, a checkerboard sort of pattern where you know it would be all the one color on the checkerboard sort of going through where you have kind of patches here there and everywhere else. Yeah, so some, but I mean at one point the it, it, some of the guidelines, the early versions of the guidelines, and early attempts to implement guidelines had the forest looking very much exactly like a checkerboard from mm-hmm. space. But research that uh, was put into it said, no, that doesn't really work out so well for a variety of reasons. And it doesn't, there's nothing in uh, uh, nature that looks exactly like a checkerboard. So the idea was then, well, okay, it's sort of checkerboard, but some of the patches will be large, much larger than others. So you'd have big, bigger harvest areas and bigger uh areas that are unharvested interspersed with smaller patches that are harvested and smaller patches that are unharvested. So a very, a lot of variety in, right. in terms of, uh, hard, you know, patch size, put it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know I worked with a, a group that worked on habitat with the South Central Fish and Wildlife Association. And we did, um, Browse cutting for deer in deer yards. Mind you, I don't see the deer yards down here like we used to see, but this would be probably 30 years ago sort of thing. And I can recall it was in Ontario, it was down this French settlement road. And what we did was we went in with brush cutters and, and crews. When the snow conditions were correct, 
because I believe that uh, the, the deer hooves need to freeze in order to release an enzyme to have them kind of cycle their nitrates, if I remember correctly, through their system. So once that had achieved, we would go in and cut basically out of 100 acre, we would do in around one acre plots and then pile all the browse. And that promoted new growth in that area for the deer to feed on as it came back up. And it, it's quite a bit different for deer, obviously, than moose. But I'm not even sure if that same programs are still something that's even utilized in the ministry. And was it still there when you were there or did you get much into deer? Well, we did uh, quite a bit of work with deer. I did quite a bit of work with deer and it uh, helped. Uh, I was even down in the Loring deer yard when that, that was a big deer yard at one time. It had about 10,000 uh, deer in the wintertime uh, mm-hmm. there in the south of North Bay. Mm-hmm. Um, but those active management programs for deer have uh, all become out of vogue and it's considered to be uh, something to pass, say, that you don't do active management like that anymore. Uh, and uh, I-, I think that's a mistake myself, but right. uh, that's uh, that's what the present thinking is, is that you you try to manage the habitat through uh, forest management practices, and other than that, you don't do much. And uh, uh, I just always kind of uh, think that, well, you know, there it maybe sometimes doing a whole bunch of stuff is 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 better. Like uh, helps out the deer. I mean, you're trying to it's you're when you're managing big game uh, right. species that are hunted, you're sort of like farming the wild. In fact, uh, it's an interesting, uh, uh, there's a show that I watch once in a while on when it comes on TV based in the UK and it's called Farming the Wild and he talks about, uh, he's mostly harvests uh, things mm-hmm. in uh, the UK and then uh, brings it through because he also has a restaurant so oh. he's out there uh Harvesting fallow deer, and uh, but he talks about how the farmers out there manage the uh, mm-hmm. game, and harvest, then they harvest them, and then they prepare them, and they sell them meat, and all this, and it goes through the big rigmarole. But it's pretty intensive management, uh, and there's there may be supplemental feeding and all sorts of things that goes on. And I think, well, on a highly populated human populated landscape like exists in much of the world and certainly in southern Ontario mm-hmm. uh, I think that saying that no we shouldn't we should have more have a hands off approach and not be intensely doing things I don't think that makes a lot of sense quite frankly but that's yeah. just the way that's me well we there's no clear cut answers to all these questions and we try different things to see what works and what doesn't work so and I can recall when I was minister I was asking what the determination and factors were for deciding the tag allocation for harvesting, for example, and the one I was uh, the one I'm referring to was deer at the time, and the stats they used was crop damage and car collisions to determine the harvest levels of deer in uh, it was wildlife management unit 73, I believe we were talking about at the time, and that's how they determined what the tag allocation would be. Because I can recall in those areas, once upon a time, there was there was no season in there uh, for harvesting deer. And then 
the ministry changed that because of the amount of crop damage and the amount of collisions with deer at that. So they needed to help lower some of those populations where it started off, I think it was a two-day season or a three-day season, then went to four and then went to a, basically it was a six-day season and now it's a full two-week season and they just regulate uh, the harvest population based on the doe tag allocation for those areas. But the one thing, uh, Bruce, uh, you brought up was uh, the amount of deer in the Loring. You mentioned 10,000 deer in the Port Loring deer yard, and which is kind of interesting because I recall there's a, um, I think it's called the Deer Institute out of Michigan, and they put out a uh, an informative uh, video at the time called, I think it was called Way of the Whitetail, where it went into the specifics that the average deer, according to them, spent 95% of its life within one square mile of its birthplace. Did you find anything like that? And, and if you did, how do you get 10,000 deer in a deer yard then? Because within one square mile, that would be a heck of a lot. But obviously, they must be coming from farther distance to go into those yarding areas. Oh, yeah. The deer in the Loring deer yard, they did radio collaring uh, of uh, many deer there. And they found that uh, deer were traveling at least uh, as far, some deer, uh, up to 60 kilometers uh, away from where they spent their time in the summer to where they were in the wintertime. So once the snow hit, deer uh, got out their travel bag and headed uh, for their winter home. So um, in Ontario, uh, deer can and do in some places travel considerable distances between the summer and winter habitat. Really? So, yeah, I recall there was a, there was a lot of, and an individual led the charge for that uh, Loring Deer Yard where they did supplemental feeding for quite a period of time because of the volume of deer there. And obviously, and that's when there was a lot of problems with deer populations. I can recall when I was, oh, say in the early 70s, that the roadkill population our numbers in New York State was actually higher than the than the estimated deer population in the province of Ontario, and boy, has it ever expanded since then, I believe. Yeah, deer numbers uh, really went up uh, in Ontario, but since uh, the peak, which was about 15, 10 to 15 years ago, uh, it's been a huge crash. Like in, here in the northwestern Ontario, I figure there was at least, a uh, hundred thousand deer, yeah, here in Ontario at its peak. But I doubt if we have even uh, half that now. Really? So, what do you think the determining factors would be for half that population to go from how a hundred thousand down to fifty thousand? Yeah, and I think it's I think it's considerably less than fifty thousand now. But the, we had some huge winters, like even uh, a couple of winters ago, we had ten feet of snow here. Oh, like yeah. It didn't accumulate. It wasn't 10 feet on the ground. But the winter, uh, over the course of the winter, we got 10 feet. And our snow, uh, it's a long winter. Like it starts in late October, early November. And it was still snow on the ground at the uh, end of April, mm-hmm. sometimes into the first week of May. So when you have those winters like that, the deer just take a beating. They, uh, The wolves kill them. They just, uh, they just can't get it to food because they flounder around in the snow mm-hmm. and, it, uh, and uh, they just die on mass. And we have had, in the last 10 years, we've had many, many winters where there's been deep, deep snow for long periods of time, uh, which was very unlike uh, the 90s 
and the early part of the century where we had many winters where I never even took the snow machine out <laughs> because there wasn't enough uh, snow to go around with the snow machine that people who were trying to get around mostly used uh, quads because there's only three, four, five inches of snow uh, at the all winter long. Never had to shovel the driveway even in the winter. And when that happened for several years, the deer population, uh, coupled with uh, the fact that we had a, a spruce budworm epidemic uh, that went through and killed off millions of balsam trees and left them uh, uh, full of lichens. We had lots of deer-like lichens in the wintertime. Mm-hmm. Uh, the population just exploded. So good habitat, lots of food, no snow, and the deer population just went crazy. And uh, now it's all those things, there's no lichens, uh, lots of uh, uh, snow, and of course uh, there's, there was lots of wolves that came along uh, with all those deer. And uh, when the wolves hung on for a lot longer than the deer did, and they helped to push the deer down to virtually uh, where they are today, which is a pretty meager hunting uh, situation these days. Mm. Well, I recall one of the stats was that if there was five consecutive years of the weather you were talking about with the, the snow load is that high, that it significantly impacts the deer and the wild turkey population because they just don't have the food forage base or the ability to recuperate its numbers because they're being depleted over a five-year period and that bad. Yeah, no, we we found if you had, uh, just looking specifically at deer in the forest conditions, if you have two, if you have two back-to-back uh, winters, you can lose 70% of the deer population. Two, 70%, wow. Well, certainly, you know, and you wanted to get into caribou as well, but if you look what happened with the Quebec, the George River herd uh, caribou population, the the numbers there are crashing unbelievably, just to basically in the, in the same kind of numbers that you just talked about in deer over the period of time. And I know because I worked with um, somebody who was looking to try and help manage a lot of that herd, but uh, the, the government of Quebec, so we met with the government of Quebec and they were saying that the population, they couldn't figure out why it had crashed so much. But I just didn't know if it, uh, like you mentioned about the deer eating the lichens, whether the food forage base has been, because the population was so high that all of a sudden it was was now like cut way bound from, uh, I can't remember what the numbers were, it was several million. Well, we had a million caribou at one yeah. time in Quebec, eh? Yep. Um, 900,000 to a million, somewhere in there. Caribou uh, in the wintertime feed almost exclusively on lichens. Yep. Uh, some ground lichens and a couple of species of arboreal lichens, or lichens that grow in trees. Um, lichens are very slow growing. Mm-hmm. But what, so it's, what happens with lichens is that when there's not a lot of caribou around, of course, the lichens grow and they grow and all this, you know, you can have uh-huh. on some of those landscapes in the far north that are pretty not densely forested, open kind of tundra. You get uh, like the ground cover is just basically covered in lichen. Right. So what, all of a sudden, out over many years, you have great potential for caribou. And of course, the caribou tend to respond to that. Mm-hmm. So you have caribou population grows and grows and grows and grows and there's all this lichens, there's food everywhere and they can travel long distances and go around the landscape uh, for, you know, 
hundreds, if not thousands of uh, square kilometers uh, feeding on lichens. And everywhere they go, there's lichens because there hasn't been caribou there for years and years. Until right. eventually, after a while, they've eaten all the lichens. <laughs> and, yeah. and the caribou population collapses. And that's a well-documented uh, phenomenon all across northern Canada mm. that's happened time and again where populations of caribou get really high and there's caribou all over the place and then the population collapses to very low levels and of course then there's no caribou and the lichens slowly come back and the cycle uh, starts again. So it, it, I, I, mm-hmm. I'm always amazed when people uh, who supposedly should know that that's going on uh, express uh, surprise and, and dismay that oh the caribou population has crashed. I don't understand why. Yeah. And I think that's you know just look in history, go back and look at the literature, and it's very clear that that's that's what happens. Like for it's often when caribou populations are not even at their peak but reasonably high, there are more caribou in Canada than there are moose, white-tailed deer, mule deer, and elk combined. Oh, really? That's quite a well. That's quite a few. Yeah, I. That's I, that's a lot. Well, I recall a friend of mine, bless his soul. His name was Tudor Howard Davies. Great individual was working in in um, RSA uh, South Africa as a uh, game manager, and the biologist would come in and say, "Okay, out of this herd of in this district of the Impala, we need you to take eliminate." 2,500 males or whatever the case may be from the age of five to seven. And they would go in and harvest all those animals in order to maintain healthy populations in RSA. And that's how they did the game management there. Certainly, uh, if if they had have looked at those kind of options in Quebec, where they were taking out, uh, obviously, it would be the, the females of the cows, then the population would stabilize instead of, and, and how long, so you get that huge kind of crash. How long does it take a, a caribou to starve to death when it goes from a million to 100,000 sort of thing or a couple hundred thousand? Now, any idea on that? Uh, well, I mean, how long does it take there for the herd to recover? Well, no. How, how long does it take? So you get that much of a loss of an animal, a lot of it from what I'm hearing is would be from starvation or disease. How long does it take that animal suffering before it, it actually expires? Well, it's probably a case of uh, a few weeks or a couple of months. Yeah. I it, would think. Yeah, I can remember in the Peterborough, Ground Count, uh, Peterborough Crown Game Preserve, that uh, studies were being done there. And the biologist in that area, and this was long before I got involved in government, because I used to get actively involved in a lot of different areas and help out with a lot of th- different things. And I was on the, um, I was Premier Peterson's World, uh, it was a wildlife working group where we got into some discussions. And they were talking about 900 to 1,000 deer annually starving to death in the Peterborough Crown Game Preserve. And it took them several months in order to finally expire, but it was not a pleasant time for, for those deer because the food forage base was just not there. There was too much of a population. And so a lot of people don't even understand, you know, Mother Nature is not always what uh, we think it is. And, and it uh, sometimes is very cruel for a lot of animals. But 
So, like with deer, what usually happens if, if uh, winter is really uh, tough and they can't get at food and there is no food around, right. is that uh, their fat reserves keep them going because in the summer there's lots of food. Yep. But there just is. Um, keeps them going through most of the winter. Now, what happens is it's usually a, a period of uh, uh, when the 80 to 90% of the mortality occurs, occurs in about a two or three week period right at the end of winter into early spring, where that's it. all of a sudden there's all these deer. They hung on and hung on and hung on. Yep. And uh, then all the spring just doesn't come, or there's the last final snow, and it pushes a whole bunch of them over the edge, and there's a mass, a pretty mass die off over a very short period of time. Yeah. That's, that's basically, they don't die. Starting, there's not a steady progression of animals dying slowly and steadily all winter long. That no. the vast majority of them die right near the end of the winter well, or early in spring. Yeah, and when we went up uh, French Settlement Road with uh, South Central Ontario Fish and Wildlife, they the we would go in in March to do the cuts for. Uh, um, and we would all snowshoe in because there was a quite a heavy snow load at that time and pile the brows and while we were cutting deer were coming out to feed on those brows while we're still in in cutting those one acre plots so you knew oh, yeah. so it was very well calculated by the ministry at that time to make sure when the time to go in because everybody a lot of people don't understand if you feed them at the wrong time you're doing the wrong thing for them and you need to if you're going to do that kind of stuff but ours was designed not only to feed them immediately but the new growth coming up in that area would provide a food forage for them for the following years as well so that like the ministry has a a guideline that's published uh, with and endorsed by the ontario federation of anglers and hunters uh how to do emergency winter deer feeding, right. what to feed them, when to feed them, and all of those sorts of things. So uh, in, in a bad winter, uh, those guidelines are, and emergency funding has been available in the last few years and uh, uh, here and there. And uh, that's it's designed to, as you say, get those deer at the end of the winter, get them through into spring. And mm-hmm. uh, uh, it, it's supported by... Uh, years of research of, of my various individuals and organizations. So it's pretty, uh, there's guidelines for almost anything you can think of. What brings people together more than fishing and hunting? How about food? I'm Chef Antonio Malaka, and I've spent years catering to the stars. Now, on Outdoor Journal Radio's Eatin' Wild podcast, Louise, Hookset, and I are bringing our expertise and Rolodex to our real passion, the outdoors. Each week, we're bringing you inside the boat, tree stand, or duck blind and giving you real advice that you can use to make the most out of your fish and game. You're going to flip that duck breast over once you get a nice hard sear on that breast. You don't want to sear the actual meat. And it's not just us chatting here. If you can name a celebrity, we've probably worked with them. And I think you might be surprised who likes to hunt and fish. When Kit Harrington asks me to prepare him sashimi with his bass, I couldn't say no. Whatever Taylor Sheridan wanted, I made sure I had it. Burgers, steak, anything off the barbecue. That's a true cowboy. All Jeremy Renner wanted to have was lemon ginger shots all day. Find Eating Wild now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. 
And now it's time for another testimonial for Chaga Health and Wellness. Okay, here we are in Lindsay with Bill, who's actually, this gentleman has given blood over 230 times. 233, yeah. 233, and that's amazing. And you've had some success with Chaga. Uh, tell us what you're dealing with and what you did and uh, how you, um, what you used. Well, I had mild, uh, high blood mild high blood pressure, wasn't very, really high, but I was on medication for a few years. Right. And then I uh, quit drinking coffee and started drinking this tea, uh, the combination tea, the green and the chaga. Right. And uh, my medication is gone. Your my medication's blood, gone? Gone. And you couldn't give blood during the other times? Yeah, I could. Oh, you could? I could, yeah. Yeah, so... But uh, a few times uh, the machine kicked me out. Oh, yeah. So, but now it doesn't anymore. So you think uh, the, the green tea and the chaga was uh, helped uh, normalize your blood pressures? Oh, yeah. Oh, very good. Because it wouldn't be just stopping coffee. It would have to be something else. Too. And that's the only thing you did different? Yep. Well, we're thank you very much for that. And, and my blood pressure is probably that of a 40-year-old man, and I'm 71. Oh, very good. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. Thank you very much for that. No problem. Okay. We interrupt this program to bring you a special offer from Chaga Health and Wellness. If you've listened this far and you're still wondering about this strange mushroom that I keep talking about and whether you would benefit from it or not, I may have something of interest to you. To thank you for listening to the show, I'm going to make trying Chaga that much easier by giving you a dollar off all our Chaga products at checkout. All you have to do is head over to our website, chagahealthandwellness.com, place a few items in the cart, and check out with the code CANOPY, C-A-N-O-P-Y. If you're new to Chaga, I'd highly recommend the regular Chaga tea. This comes with 15 tea bags per package, and each bag gives you around five or six cups of tea. Hey, thanks for listening. Back to the episode. Well, one of the things that I wanted to talk about was uh, caribou. And you did some work on caribou, and I know I helped uh, get some funding from uh, Safari Club International for the the caribou in the far north of Ontario, which would be up around Hudson's Bay. And Hudson's Bay, where the Ontario-Manitoba border was. And so some of the guidelines for a caribou mosaic, when you're talking forestry cuts, are quite a bit different than a moose mosaic, correct? Yeah, they're designed to be a large, very large cut, very little uh, left in terms of uh, residual patches of forest. And uh, um, the idea there is not necessarily that uh, that patch itself is going to create uh, uh, caribou habitat, mm-hmm. it, say the caribou use, but it's it, contributes to a landscape that in the future won't hold many moose because it all comes up even aged in conifer uh, so there's not many moose and if there's not many moose then there's not going to be many wolves running around and uh, it can form a buffer uh, in terms of an area as to where the caribou actually are. And it, it can contribute to uh, caribou habitat as well, but the thing with these guidelines is they're supposed to be these large 
clear cuts of up to about a hundred, I believe it's about a hundred thousand or is it 10,000 acres, maybe a hundred thousand, whatever, whatever it is. But that's the minimum size of patch that uh, caribou have been found to require uh, and use that sustains them on the landscape. So the biggest harvest area that the guidelines uh, suggest that you try to get to in forest management practice creates the minimum patch size that uh, a caribou habitat is in the future when it grows up into an even aged for mature forest. Right. So basic, but basically, uh, the caribou habitat is created through these massive forest fires. So when you have these forest fires that are, uh, I guess the cut is 10,000 acres. You get these big forest fires that are 100,000, 200,000, 300,000 uh, acres, like we heard about this summer. Those are the future uh, places in the forest that will support caribou once those mm-hmm. big fires grow up and they get to be about uh, 60 years old and older, then for maybe 100 years they can be caribou habitat if they don't burn uh, or get blown down. But that, and so, but the forest harvest practices are meant around, sort of nibbling around the, the edges of those great big places that uh, get burnt are designed so that uh, moose don't get really abundant and support a wolf population that can then zip in and uh, get the, the little caribou herds that are running around uh, in these old, old burns. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so essentially a lot of the, the forest harvesting emulate uh, traditional forest fires in a lot of cases, large burns, as I recall. Cause they, and, and historically they've seen there's a lot of data that they can access that shows that this burn was this size. And, and then they would do a cut to emulate that, which is a, a very high promotion for caribou populations. But it doesn't help moose populations at all. Well, initially they do help moose populations because moose can take uh, advantage of those uh, cuts. But of course, they have to move in and out of them, and uh, uh, when there's lots of snow, uh, it's harder to get around. But ca- moose can get around. The, the idea, as I said, the idea is that uh, these large cuts using the caribou guidelines right. are designed so that when they grow up. Uh, and become conifer forests, and that's what they want them to be. Mm-hmm. They're, they're in conifer-type uh, forests. They get to be about 60 years old, and they're an even-aged conifer forest with very little in the understory, so it's not going to support moose. Now, in the for the first 20 years, it's pretty good moose uh, uh, habitat. Okay. But after that, it, it isn't. Uh, Moose kind of dwindle off and uh, disappear, mm-hmm. and uh, then it it might support some caribou, but uh, ten thousand acres is not big enough to actually support a herd of caribou. It, and it might support a small herd, but that's all of data that I've seen and the research shown that that's the minimum patch size, the minimum patch mm. size. That supports caribou. The caribou 
needs these even-aged forest patches that are, say, 60 years old and older, maybe as young as 45, but care, uh, that, and they have to, preferably, there are 100,000 acres or more in size. And you can't harvest area that big. You just There is not enough time uh, to do it. Right. By the time you start at one end to get to the other end, well, you, you just, you've run out of time and all of a sudden the place where you started, that's taking you 20 years to get to the end and it's uh, 20 years old. So it's not an even age forest anymore. So that's, right. the logistics suggest that get cut these big chunks so that in the long term, right. you're not supporting and providing a, a moose with good habitat. So, but in the short term, yeah. cutting provides good moose habitat, just like these great big burns uh, that are 100,000 acres or so mm-hmm. uh, or more. Uh, that's going to be for 20 years. They're going to be great moose habitat. Right. Like so, we had a, a couple of burns here in the Kenora District in the uh, 80s that were uh, a couple of hundred thousand acres in size. And uh, it just produced moose like uh, you wouldn't believe. We had great uh, moose habitat, great moose populations here. Right. And uh, then they grew up, and after they got about uh, 25 years old, the moose populations collapsed. And uh, in some, like say in Wildlife Management Unit 6, the tag allocation used to be over 200 uh, tags were allocated to hunters. Right. And uh, for a few years now, we've had one tag. Really? That's a big difference. Yeah, because there's there's just no uh, forest grew up uh, from these big burns, and uh, the moose population just collapsed. So with all the forest fires that have gone through basically Canada, all across Canada, it uh, you can expect to see moose populations start to increase as a result. We're going to see moose populations explode. Really? Yeah. So how long does it take for the caribou population to benefit from that? You know, you mentioned about the 60-year sort of mark before yes. they start to see the benefit where their populations increase. From these fires, it takes at least 45, but usually as a general thinking is that by 60 years of age, uh, these big, a large burn becomes like a suitable caribou habitat. So that long. And then, and then you, do you get population growth at that time? Well, you have hundreds of thousands of uh, acres of good habitat. Yep. So, uh, yeah, the population should respond and grow. But in the, the forest, caribou don't do that well in the forest. Like, they do well out in the tundra, and uh, over, which is vast. Right. Uh, that's, that's where they do best. And they can move around and roam around, and uh, mm-hmm. they can see their visual animal, and uh, it is... It's vast. They don't have to be dependent on these huge forest fires that for a couple hundred years provide some suitable habitat. Out in the tundra, as it's vast, there's habitat there all the time, here and there, somewhere. And that's why caribou move around. So what population or strain, I believe it's woodland caribou, most of the ones you're talking about referring to, correct? Well, caribou are just a plastic species that uh, can survive in a variety of habitats. Caribou are all one species. Caribou and reindeer, they're all one species. So you put caribou from wherever you find them. Right. You put, if you put a male and a female caribou uh, together, they'll produce little caribou. 
So they're, they are all one species. And this business of, oh, these caribous this and this caribou is going extinct and that caribou is going extinct and we got to worry about these ones, they're in danger of extinction. That's all malarkey. Those are all just populations that are going, uh, that are being extirpated. But that goes on all the time. Right. Uh, it, it, it's very natural for populations to come and go. Now, you don't want to lose them from, uh, say, all the caribou that live in the mountains. You don't want to see all of them go uh, because there's, they're, they've become adapted to that uh, landscape. Right. But there's nothing to say that if all the caribou disappeared from the mountains and uh, people say, oh, well, we've got to do something. we got to bring in caribou from uh, who knows where right. and let them go in the mountains. They'll probably survive uh, there again if they're suitable habitat for them. Mm-hmm. Because car- and over time, they start to look a little different and behave a little different. And that's what happens when you're in different uh, sorts of environments. You start looking different. You start behaving a little different. But all little caribou, wherever they're found, anywhere in the world, they're all one species of caribou. Yeah, so because I recall the part of that study that I saw uh, that Safari Club International helped sponsor up Fort Severn herds populations up there. Um, basically said it was a cross between woodland and barren ground caribou, which would make it, what, a new strain? Or, according to you, no, if they're all the same strain, just some are live in the woods, so they call those woodland ones, and then the ones on the on the tundra are the barren ground ones, right? Yeah, like there's, in Ontario, they say the southern non-migratory forest-dwelling ecotype is uh, threatened with extinction. And I'm thinking, well, that's just kind of malarkey. Like, that's my opinion. But there are studies like in Quebec where they call, there's a, a herd of caribou called the red wine herd. And they're saying that herd is threatened with extinction. And they've been, for a variety of reasons. But they had caribou collared with, uh, out of that red wine herd. And they had caribou from the, the uh, tundra uh, herds when their population was doing well. And they come down and they go through the area inhabited by the red wine caribou herd. And guess what they found? Is that they found that, huh, some of the caribou that they said were the threatened red wine caribou herd took up with the migrating tundra caribou and went with them back up to the tundra. And some of the ones from the tundra said, huh, I kind of like these red wine caribou guys. (laughs) And uh, they stayed with them. So, as I said, there's a lot of misinformation right. and a lot of uh, I just just poor interpretation of uh, basic science that goes on in caribou because caribou are political hot potato for a variety of reasons and people use caribou to try and achieve some goal that they have in, in mind as to what goes on with the landscape or with caribou or with other things that caribou are part of, whether it's hunting or aboriginal rights or wolf predation or whatever. And uh, the data is manipulated to suit, mm-hmm. suit the narrative that they're trying to uh, push. Right. Yeah, and, and but but that's why you know certainly that's why the ministry had you there for thirty years because of your the the knowledge base that you have on all these in, these sort of things and and one of the things that I know we talked about on a number of different occasions was as you said that 
each jurisdiction, so Ontario is saying that, oh, the woodland caribou are, are threatened or in, in, endangered, but that's not taking all things into consideration. Uh, that's just Ontario looking at one sector as opposed to Canada-wide. Canada-wide, there's lots. Like it, it'd be like Quebec saying, okay, we our caribou are endangered now, but if you go Canada-wide, the populations are very stable and they're up and down, but just not possibly by jurisdiction or jurisdiction or area by area. I know when we were in Pickle Lake on Lake St. Joseph, we would see all kind of caribou on the water and all around in that area. But but the numbers, when I started looking afterwards, there there was, what, ten to 14,000 in that area. But those numbers would fluctuate, but certainly very stable. But there hasn't been a lot of research province-wide on the numbers, or would you know the numbers of caribou in Ontario? Well, the last, uh, what was the last? I did hear what the last numbers were, but they were quite a bit higher than uh, uh, what uh, they thought. There were actually more caribou than uh, the ministry thought when they did the most recent survey that I'm aware of, which was done about 10 years ago. Right. Um, and I think, if I recall correctly, and I could be wrong here, but I think they think there's at least 20,000 caribou in Ontario. Right. So, yeah. like, so they're, but. They have a line, and they say the caribou north of that line, they're okay. Mm-hmm. But car- caribou south of this line, they're uh, threatened with extinction. And then federally, I think woodland caribou are threatened with extinction. Uh, but as they say, car- woodland caribou are only caribou that live in the woods. Right. So they're, they're no genetically, they're not uh, ident- you can't differentiate them from caribou from elsewhere. Right. They've tried that. And they didn't had they had no success. So they come up with these things like the forest dwelling, non migratory forest dwelling ecotype, which is just some way to say, well, these guys that I really like that live here, I want to protect them. Mm-hmm. So it's it, it's like it used, mm-hmm. it used to be uh, all the species and subspecies used to be based on uh, measurements of. Uh, uh, um, usually body measurements. Now we've got into DNA. Right. But so there's what used to be, they said, uh, when we, uh, there was talk and we eventually did it, uh, reintroduced elk into uh, Ontario. And lots of people were saying, oh, but the, that's not the same elk that used to be in Ontario. Ontario used to be occupied by the eastern elk. Right. Well, guess what? Uh, when they did some uh, further analysis, they found that uh, there's no such thing as an eastern elk. <laughs> uh, that, that there's uh, gen- there is no basis, genetic basis, for an eastern elk ever having existed. All it was was elk living in the east. Right. We got rid of all of them from hunt over hunting and changes in the habitat, habitat, farming, yep. and, and farming, and this and that. Yep. But there no there never was an eastern elk. Right. So that art, but people still cling to that argument. And even though there's been papers published in the literature that says no, uh, we don't think that there ever was an eastern elk, and here and those papers are published. But people cling to those old uh, shibboleths, and uh, it just mm-hmm. it refused to go away. Well, it was uh, one issue I recall as minister that they were saying that oh, minister the. 
Northern Ontario strain of bald eagle is very stable, but we're having problems with the Southern Ontario bald eagle strain as not being stable. And I looked at them and I shook my head and I said, bald eagles are bald eagles. They look at opportunities. If the opportunities are better in the north, then that's where they'll be. Whereas if their populations aren't as popular or as high in the south, there's reasons for that. But it's not a separate strain, in my opinion. And I could be wrong. You Tell me if I'm wrong. Maybe I am. I think bald eagles are bald eagles. I don't think there's a northern Ontario bald eagle strain and a southern Ontario bald eagle strain. Well, it's sort of like the Hatfields and the McCoys, right? <laughs> the Hatfields, they were different than the McCoys. Yep. But at the end of the day, they're just people, right? Yep. So with eagles or with caribou, yes, there's different there's different in populations and differences in the communities, but that's the, that's evolution and progress. Is that as animals live in certain places over periods of time, there's constant adaptation to where they're living, and subtle changes occur. So, what happens is that one population or community starts to do things and look a little different uh, than another. Uh, community and the population does. Right. So, yes, they do. They are, there are differences, and that's irrefutable. But yeah. that doesn't mean that uh, uh, the there different are different species, you know? Yeah. Well, and I, I recall one of the issues was that um, it was the Fort Severn uh, caribou herd that actually Ontario, that, that they calved in Ontario and then migrated west into Manitoba, and Manitoba had a season on those caribou, but Ontario did not for harvesting, and Ontario had no season on that, and the big issue was, you know, what, well, how can Manitoba harvest them and we can in Ontario and back and forth and things like that. So, and it's understanding boundaries and population bases, and, and when you get into those sorts of things, you need agreements with the jurisdictions that end up managing the same animals, I believe. Well, that's why we have the migratory game, things like the Migratory Game Birds Convention Act, yep. because uh, recognize that uh, waterfowl migrate across the uh, boundary. So they decided that that was, let's get together and start having some commonality as to how we manage these uh, species. And the same could or should uh, exist for uh, some of the wildlife species like caribou that range across the uh, large landscapes and move across boundaries so that, uh, you know, we aren't completely, uh, one side is managing apples and one side is managing oranges. Right. Well, you helped out in one transfer, I believe. I believe you did, did you not, with the moving the caribou to the Mishmacotan Island? No, I didn't have anything to do with uh, any of that uh, movement of caribou there. Okay, because I wondered, because uh, I don't know if there's been a any looks at the population ba- uh, base there in the Mishmacotton, whether it's been successful or not. And I recall, I believe it was yourself, because there was quite a number of biologists that I dealt with that mentioned that uh, they were looking in the wrong spots to, 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 to determine how successful they were. So have you heard, or do you know much about uh, what... Uh, well, what did, happens, uh, where, they where, brought caribou across to Mitch McCotton Island, and the caribou initially did very well. Right. Then we had a winter where the ice on Lake Superior froze solid for quite a period of time between Mitch McCotton and the mainland, and wolves crossed over and took up uh, residency 
on Mishpacotton and proceeded to uh, gnaw their way through the herd. Okay. <laughs> the herd started to collapse and people panicked and uh, they started to, uh, so they went in and rescued the caribou. Didn't, didn't get rid of the wolves. They rescued the caribou by capturing them and moving them over to places like the Slate Island, which had had a good caribou herd, right. but caribou there had eaten themselves out of house and home, and in the wintertime, dependent, my understanding, was dependent, were dependent on lichens falling, getting blown during uh, windstorms, getting blown from the treetop down to the forest floor where they could eat them. Right. So, and, and of course... Uh, Freezes not regularly, but not uh, but infrequently. It freezes out to the Slate Islands as well, and of course the wolves cross back and forth. So it's it's, it's like uh, Thomas Berger he was, uh, did a lot of work on the Slate Islands with caribou. He would say if you want to manage caribou, you have to if you are serious about managing caribou, you have to go you have to be all in. You right. just can't do sort of caribou management and being all in means you have to be prepared to do predator management which means predator control and uh, the ministry is just not prepared to do that yeah rather than get rather than try and say okay like wolves are common in all of northern Ontario there's no there's no situation where the people have to worry about wolves going extinct in northern Ontario there's lots of wolves they're widespread they're very healthy all the data says that there's Lots of wolves. So rather than say, okay, maybe the thing to do is because we're really concerned about these caribou, they're on this one island, they can seem to be doing fairly well. We can uh, have this little uh, caribou herd, and every once in a while, if the ice does freeze and wolves do get across, let's just get rid of those small numbers of uh, wolves. Mm-hmm. Very targeted predator management, predator control. Yeah. No, they did. They refused to do that, and instead they spent, uh, got to be hundreds of thousands of dollars going in there, catching, capture, recapturing those caribou that they brought in and released, and, and the population grew, to move them, to get them uh, out and put them somewhere else where they thought they may be able to keep uh, away from uh, being eaten up by the wolves on Michigan. So right. it's... <laughs> Sometimes you you have to shake your head and wonder, yeah, what what is really going on here? You know, like well, what's the end game here? You know. Well, exactly, and I know some of it was the ministry's allocation of funds towards managing species like caribou. There was a reluctance to alloc- do allocations of funds because they were having a difficult time with with current species, whether it's moose or deer, or bringing in, and then try to find management harvesting plans to regulate har, um, caribou growth, as uh, from what I'm hearing and understanding didn't really happen in Quebec, so they don't have those huge peaks and lows. And yet there was a reluctance from the financial basis as well, from what I understand, uh, to move that. And certainly in my time, we didn't get the opportunity. We weren't in long enough to be able to allocate some of those details. But when you talk about the Slate Island as well, I understand that there's actually wolves on Slate now? Well, I don't know if they're there right today. Okay. Um, I think been wolves have uh, been documented uh, on there uh, several times in the past uh, 
10 years. Oh, okay. And for that, sometimes they go out there, they stay, oh, the, a few wolves went out and visited and they didn't stay long. Um, but uh, they definitely do show up there uh, from time to time. Yeah, because I, 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 my understanding of the Slate Islands was that the, the, it was the banks were so steep that even when the um, like the surrounding banks around the island that's inside Lake Superior, that um, that the wolves could not get in and get up the banks to get on the island. But I, I'm I could be mistaken there. Am, am I, or do you know? Well, it depends on how uh, how much freezes. You know, right? Like if it's some years, uh, Lake Superior freezes virtually uh, solid. Right. Not. You know, that might be only once every 10 years or so. But in the years when it freezes solid, the wolves can find a way onto the island. There's okay. no doubt about it. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't sure. I just understood that there were high banks and made it very difficult for a caribou to leave or a new caribou to come on or wolves to get on. But uh, and then I, I think was... it's mostly that, uh, like, they're, they're fairly open there. And I, I think the ice conditions are such that the wolves generally don't... Uh, go across. It's about, I think it's about ten miles from the shore to uh, the slate. So, right. uh, uh, yeah, the window of uh, opportunity is, is limited as to when the wolves can get actually get out there. Oh. And some years it doesn't freeze at all in that part. The winds just keep keep it open, so the wolves cannot get out there. Mm-hmm. Well, but it does every once in a while, and there there they are. Right. Yeah. Well, it's like I was just going to say, it's like uh, on uh, Isle Royale is that uh, there they've brought wolves in right. <laughs> because uh, it's, it's, well, it's a strange world we live in. Well, actually, and that's what I was alluding to, because I thought that's what may have happened on the Slate Islands, because I recall the population density was so getting so high <clears throat> that there was concern that they were going to basically eat themselves out of housing, housing home and have huge population peaks and lows and a large die-off. And so they brought wolves in to try and help manage that. But my belief was that the Slate Islands could have been a great, uh, basically, um, area for trap and transfer to get new pockets of, of caribou growing in the province where you mentioned about the, the 45 to 60 year growth that uh, maybe no caribou in that area where if you use the, the bases out of Slate Island to cap and capture and relocate those and the same way that uh, happened with the elk you get uh, external organizations willing to cover the cost so it's not a, an impact on the ministry that uh, you could have large pockets of more caribou throughout the province but didn't end up happening that way. So the slate caribou population ebbed and flowed for years and years and years. It went up and down based on, uh, uh, but eventually the caribou ate most of the lichens. And they were so dependent on, as I said, windstorms knocking lichens down right. that uh, uh, the caribou population virtually collapsed. It yep. was down to a nothing or a handful of uh, caribou. Just not very good caribou habitat anymore until there's no caribou there for a while and the lichen population can reestablish itself. Right. Well, Bruce, I know that you got to get out and take your buddy out for, for her run, I believe it is. And Get Neva. Neva the, Neva the diva. She needs her uh, exercise. You're probably getting the look that I had last night uh, from my chocolate lab is like, hey, when are we going for our walk? Or at that time of the night, it's usually a run. 
and it's probably about the same. Well, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on with us, uh, Bruce, and, and I want to thank you for the 30 years as a biologist with the ministry and the great uh, work that you've done with the ministry. And if people want to get in touch with you, uh, how can they find you or where or what are you putting out there that uh, people can kind of be in touch and find out more information from Bruce Ranta? Well, I still write for, uh, I have a column with uh, Ontario uh, Out of Doors magazine. Right. So uh, you can go to Ontario Out of Doors and uh, it'll give you instructions as to, they're online as well as a magazine on the stands and it'll give you instructions as to how you can reach me there. Very good. And I'm uh, also the chair of the Health Technical Advisory Committee for the Province of Ontario, but we, we don't. We're looking at putting a some sort of. Uh, you can well, you can get the ETAC. You can contact the uh, Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters right. uh, and mention that you want to uh, through ETAC get a hold of me. So that's another possibility. Well, thank you very much, Bruce. I really appreciate you taking the time and informing us and enlightening us and giving all those people some better understandings of how everything works under the canopy. Thanks, Jerry. All the best. Have a good day. You too. Well, that was Bruce Ranta. He was a biologist in the Kenora District with the Ontario Ministry of Natural Resources for 30 years and now retired and writer and spends time out in the bush and still inputting on a lot of stuff, as he mentioned, his work with the Elk Committee, and we really appreciate the time and information and all the details with everything he provided for us under the canopy. What do football, hockey players, boxers, and fishing guides have in common? A love for the outdoors. I'm Jamie Pastilli, a fishing guide with a lifetime of experience chasing down some of North America's most sought-after species with some of the world's most interesting characters. On Outdoor Journal Radio's Tackle Box podcast, I'm joined by one of those people, CFL legend Brad Sinopoli as we share stories and talk to the athletes who found their passion through hunting and fishing. World Heavyweight Champion Tyson Fury, they brought you in to spar this big animal. I had a rod, so I just randomly brought it to Colorado. It got me hooked up on some beautiful fish, those big rivers, and it was uh, you know, some of my best memories of you know, my hockey, during my hockey career. So join Jamie and I every week on the Tackle Box for a behind-the-scenes look at some of your favorite athletes and angling personalities. From hits to tangles, passes into angles, the Tackle Box has your sports and angling listening covered. Find the Tackle Box now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts.